Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Only 45 men have occupied the office of the presidency in the past 234 years. Each came to the office with a unique set of skills, flaws, and strengths, just as Joe Biden has. Most recently, we've had our boomer presidents in Clinton and Bush, a Gen Xer in Obama, early JFK and Jimmy Carter came to the office unseasoned, and Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and Lyndon Johnson arrived as fully formed political beings. Joe Biden comes to us not only as our oldest president, but one having lived a very long public life, during which we've watched him grow into the person and politician he is today. The degree to which he is still growing in that office is an open question, but one worthy of exploring. Every four years, a vote for president is essentially a gut check, a vote about the man in the moment, and sometimes, not always, but when we're really lucky, the man and the moment match up. It may be fair to say that that was the case with Joe Biden in November of 2020. But is it still the case? Most of us know that in deep interpersonal relationships, the things that attract us most about someone are the things that ultimately turn us away. Well, Joe Biden seemed to be the perfect antidote to Trump. Can his bent for normalcy, what attracted us to him, enable him to be the 21st century president we need at this moment? And what is his performance so far, halfway through his presidency? Tell us about what's ahead. All of this and a lot more is what my guest Chris Whipple explores in his new book, The Fight of His Life. Chris Whipple is an author, political analyst, an Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker. He's a frequent guest on MSNBC, CNN, and NPR, and has contributed essays to numerous publications, including the New York Times and the Washington Post. He's the author of two award-winning books, The Gatekeepers, a look at White House Chiefs of Staff, as well as his follow-up, The Spy Masters, based on interviews with every living CIA director. It is my pleasure to welcome Chris Whipple back to this program to talk about the fight of his life inside Joe Biden's White House. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be with you. Thanks for that kind introduction. Well, it is indeed great to have you here. It is so interesting to speculate, and, and obviously it is kind of an idle speculation, but to think about Joe Biden's presidency today in, in the context of what a Biden presidency might have been like the two previous times that he ran for the office back in 1988 and in 2008. And it really speaks to how, how Joe Biden has grown and who he is today. Talk a little about that first. Yeah, you know, you referred earlier to Joe Biden uh, meeting the moment um, in November 2020. And uh, it is interesting to think of what what might have been the case back in uh, 1988 or or 2008, you know, Biden's whole life has been a fight uh, against adversity and tragedy and bad luck. You know, he he lost two races for the presidency, and his father always told him, get up. And he did, and he finally won the presidency in 2020. Um, I think he was a guy for that moment. Um, I, I also think he was a he was the man for the moment on November 24, 2022, when a Russian tyrant invaded a democracy in the heart of Europe. Uh, nobody was better better prepared or equipped to deal with that. But I see, um, you know, I see my book and the Biden presidency as a kind of political thriller in three acts. And the first act was the unbelievably fraught transition uh, that that almost didn't happen. We we almost didn't have a peaceful transfer of power. It was the 
bloodiest transition since the Civil War, and I have untold stories about that, previously untold stories in my book. Uh, the second act was the first year of the Biden presidency, which was a rough ride, and it was really dominated by the bungled exit from Afghanistan, slide in Biden's approval ratings. Um, and then the third act, I believe the turning point of the Biden presidency was Putin's invasion of Ukraine and and Biden rallying NATO and the West to 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 face him down. Um, and there followed, of course, a whole string of legislative victories, uh, some of them bipartisan, uh, as he as he pointed out last night. Uh, and uh, then defying the odds in the midterms. So, uh, you know, I think the Biden I think Biden goes into his third year with uh, considerable momentum. How much, particularly of what you talk about of the first two acts in particular, and we'll get to Ukraine in a moment, but how much is the Biden presidency defined by its follow-on to Donald Trump? Well, to a great extent. I mean, yeah. I, I think that the defining tests of the Biden presidency uh, are really three. Um, one, one was to deal with a once-in-a-century pandemic and a, a crippled economy that resulted from it and to to wrestle that um, and come through it and and uh, put the U.S. back on track. Uh, the second defining test, I would say, was uh, was Ukraine, uh, which, it, you know, it, it, this is a case where, uh, you know, we we people have said periodically that uh, that for Vladimir Putin conquering Ukraine is existential. I think that for Biden and the U.S. and the West, stopping Putin is existential. So there's that test. And then finally, there is the the Trump test. And it's, uh, you know, the one thing that shocked Joe Biden more than anything else as president was the lasting power of Trumpism, of MAGA. He thought it would be in the rearview mirror uh, long before now. He thought he had a seven million vote mandate uh, and it's still with us. And I think he believes that democracy is still very much on the ballot in 2024. So those are, I think, the three defining tests of this presidency. They're what historians will be talking about. What does he take away from coming to understand how long Trump and Trumpism is still around? What does that tell him about the country that he leads? Well, it shocked him. And uh, he's been wrestling with it throughout his presidency. And there's always been uh, it, he's always tried to do two contradictory things. Uh, number one, to unify the country, uh, to be the anti-Trump, to lower the temperature and and take us take us back to normal. And number two, to call out. MAGA and Trumpism and the threat that it still represents. Uh, so he's always had that tension. And for a long time, he didn't talk about the quote. You know, he would refer to the former guy. Um, and uh, but then as as the presidency went on and as he realized that it wasn't going away, he delivered that fiery anniversary speech, January 6th, the first anniversary, which was, I think, one of his best speeches. Um, and he Famously, uh, before the midterms, talked a lot about the threat to democracy from MAGA. So I think that's been the that's been the evolution. 
One of the things that's so interesting, certainly presidents are judged by by previous presidents, but with with Biden, it seems that there's the Trump comparison. There's the shadow of Trump that he's still dealing with, as you talk about, but there's also the shadow of Obama that he's still dealing with. Talk about that. Yeah, I found found it kind of fascinating as I, uh, you know, I, I spent two years talking to almost every member of Joe Biden's inner circle for my book, The, the Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's Presidency. And it, and it wasn't easy, as you can imagine, um, because this is one of the most battened down, disciplined, leak-proof, on-message uh, White Houses in, in modern times. Uh, they don't talk out of school much, but I was lucky to talk to all these people, and I was also able to get some pretty candid um, assessments of uh, that relationship between Biden and Obama. Um, you know, there's it's been portrayed as a bromance, and, and that's true. But there's also, you know, there's a real competitive, uh, there's a little competitive friction there, too. I mean, Obama's, Obama and his aides were not at all thrilled when Biden's uh, advisors were talking about him as FDR and during early on in his administration and and complaining that uh, uh, that Obama's stimulus back in 2009 that first stimulus bill was was small potatoes uh, compared to what uh, Joe Biden was going to do and so there's 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 a little there's a little friction between those two and I think um, I think Biden obviously learned a lot uh, from Obama and respects him. But, uh, you know, they're competitive guys. And you talk about the relationship, particularly uh, David Axelrod and and, and Pluff, that uh, there was a lot of tension there with with Biden and his people. Yeah, Joe Biden never felt that he was, he, you know, contrary to what, what some people have said about him. I mean, you know, I love Anita Dunn, but at one point she said, Joe Biden's the only Irishman who doesn't carry a grudge. I, I carry it for him. Not true. I mean, Biden <laughs> carries a big chip on his shoulder. He's never been crazy about Ivy Leaguers. You know, uh, he, um, he graduated 200-something in his Syracuse law class and, and has always uh, uh, n- never been thrilled by Ivy Leaguers who, who he thought didn't take him seriously. Um, and... Uh, you know, in the case of uh, David Axelrod and David Pluff, uh, Obama's senior political advisors, Biden always felt that they didn't think he, Joe Biden, was presidential material. And uh, so a good friend of Biden's told me, you know, he hates the Davids, <laughs> as he put it. <laughs> Talk a little bit about the transition, because and you really get to the heart of how crazy it was and how difficult it was given what was going on with Trump and January 6th and everything else. But there's also a case that could be made that the chaos of the transition and the way all of the Biden people had to pull together to make it work really turned into an advantage as things went on. Talk about that. Well, it may have, you know, in the sense that uh, it was such a trial by fire for the Biden team. I mean, it was just the most unbelievable. Uh, and by the way, a lot of it previously unreported story. I mean, Oceans of Ink have been written about the Trump's final days. But I was shocked that 
I was able to kind of uncover this story about this little-known Trump staffer, a deputy chief of staff in the Trump White House named Chris Liddell, who single, not single-handedly, but under Trump's nose and without his knowledge, kept the wheels of the transition turning and uh, managed to, uh, to, to, to keep things moving forward, even as Trump was trying to uh, overthrow the election. Uh, and reporting to Mark Meadows, who was also up to his eyeballs in, in uh, trying to overthrow the election. So it, was, it came closer than anybody thought. And uh, that, that story is really something. But I, I think that it, you're right, it, it, that when you come through a transition like that, that almost didn't happen, uh, you know, you, you form a bond. It was a, and it was a, a great team. I'm Jeff Zients and, uh, who's now the re- replacing Ryan Klein as chief of staff and Ted Kaufman, who was uh, Joe Biden's alter ego, who replaced him in the Senate when he became VP to Obama were, were running the transition. They ran a brilliant transition against all the odds. Given the nature of the transition, when, when Biden finally came into office and, and, and all of his, his staff and some of the so many of the people that you talked to in this book, did they have a clear plan at that moment what they wanted to do? Or was there an element even more than most presidencies of, of building the plane while it was flying? Well, you know, it, 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 it was very much building a plane while it was flying, I, I think. I mean, they had all kinds of plants. But, you know, one of Jake Sullivan's, uh, the National Security Advisor's favorite expressions he stole from Mike Tyson, which is uh, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And that certainly happened in the first year. And and the the Afghanistan withdrawal was uh, was certainly one example of it. That, you know, the, then, the, of course, the Delta variant came out of nowhere when they thought they had a handle on COVID and uh, there was a long slide in Joe Biden's approval rating, but these guys had a plan, and and certainly it, it worked awfully well, uh, all things considered. With COVID, I mean Jeff Zients, the leader, led that team and uh, the coronavirus response team, and they got 220 million Americans vaccinated in a hundred days, uh, saving. Uh, you know, thousands of lives. And, uh, you know, so you got to give them a lot of credit. And talk a little bit about Afghanistan and how much of the decisions that were made with respect to Afghanistan were decisions that were totally the function of the Biden administration. And how much were they stuck with the commitments that Trump had made, particularly with respect to withdrawing by May 1st? Yeah, that was all practically mission impossible. Uh, you, you, because of, of what Trump had did, and I'll explain in a second what Trump had done. Um, you know, you can argue with Biden's decision one way or the other. You know, sh- should we have withdrawn when we did? Biden made the decision to withdraw. Uh, in my view, it was practically uh, mission impossible uh, because Trump had said in no uncertain terms, that the U.S. would withdraw on May 1st of 2021. Uh, he'd had that half-baked negotiation with the Taliban. Uh, once he declared that deadline, um, Biden, of course, ultimately moved it to August 31, 
But once that was declared, the writing was on the wall for the Afghan government and and armed forces. Uh, They knew that the U.S. was going to hit the road, and ultimately they hit the road first. Um, Plenty of mistakes were made in the... uh, in the execution of the of the withdrawal from Afghanistan by Biden's team, they didn't have enough troops on the ground. They had a cap of 700 as they tried to do it. The, the intelligence was bad. They thought the government would last much longer than it did. But it all goes back to Trump declaring that we were leaving. And I don't think there was much uh, we could have done about that. You were talking earlier about the leak-proof nature, the the drama-free nature of the administration. Talk a little bit about that and why you think it's the case. Well, let me put it this way. There's, there was actually plenty of drama and continues to be plenty of drama behind closed doors. And, and that's, of course, uh, what I, what I, why I was able to... Uh, to write this book. Um, and I really did get a, an inside glimpse of, of a lot of colorful personalities and arguments about, about policy. But having said that, this is a very well-run White House. And there's a reason why great White House chiefs are hard to come by. It's a rare skill set. Ron Klain had it. Uh, Jim Baker under Ronald Reagan had it. Leon Panetta under Bill Clinton had it. The combination of Capitol White House experience, knowledge of Capitol Hill, political savvy, managerial acumen, a world-class temperament, which all the great ones have, and a relationship with the boss. Uh, Klain had it all. Um, and that's one of the reasons why. And he, and he, and he had a, um, you know, he had a very collegial approach uh, to running the White House. You have to be able to manage down as well as up. You can't just manage the boss. You've got to inspire loyalty among the staff. Klain had all of that, and that's why it's a well-run White House. Talk about Biden's temperament. You know, we all know the the Oliver Wendell Holmes quote about FDR, that he had a a second-class intellect and a first-class temperament. Talk about temperament with respect to Biden. Yeah, I've I've referred to, uh, you know, Klain as having a world-class temperament. And, And by the way, I think Jeff Zients, does too, and I, and I think that will serve him well. I think Joe Biden is <laughs> Biden is more complicated. I think by and large he's he's got a he's got a very very strong temperament, um, but he's also got a pretty strong temper. Um, and there were there were times, particularly uh, during when he was grappling with the border, trying to figure out what to do about it. It's 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 a you know it's it's one of those thankless uh, challenges where all the all the options are bad um, and nobody's interested. Certainly, the Republicans, for the most part, are not interested in a comprehensive solution. They just want to use it as a cudgel. So it's a classic example of what Rahm Emanuel told me once about how you know if it's if if there's some, something's easy someone else will handle it. Everything that gets into the Oval is between bad and worse. Anyway, roundabout way of saying, answering your question, that Biden would lose it over the border. You would hear the F-bomb constantly. You could hear it throughout the West Wing. Um, And, you know, as one senior advisor put it to me, you know, that's just that's that's just that's just the way he 
he handles these some of these really difficult challenges. He he blows off steam. Talk about his relationship with Vice President Harris. You you talk a lot about that in the book, and 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 it's very revealing. More than has been written any place else, really. It's co- complicated and it's fascinating. Uh, Joe Biden clearly has a bond with her. He certainly had a a real bond with her in the beginning. He wanted to have her in almost every meeting he wanted her to attend. Uh, They were thrown together by COVID. Uh, She wasn't traveling much, neither was he. Uh, And by all accounts, Biden really valued her input, like the way she would cross-examine briefers, uh, you know, with her prosecutorial chops. Uh, But things got trickier as time went on, and she began to draw fire uh, for her handling of the the Northern Triangle on that awkward trip to Guatemala where she she was embarrassed by Lester Holt's question about going to the border. And and then her allies began complaining that Biden had given her a much too difficult portfolio, that he, in effect, set her up for failure. Northern Triangle, voting rights— how can anybody do that? And uh, then it got back to Biden that uh, the second gentleman, Doug Emhoff, had been going around complaining that uh, about her portfolio. And this really just uh, annoyed Joe Biden to no end. I mean, he he thought, look, I, he wasn't asking Kamala Harris to do anything he hadn't done for Joe Biden. He had the Northern Triangle. He had tough assignments. And so it's it's complicated. And where does that relationship stand today? Do you think? Well, I think I think it's probably pretty good. Um, you know, he certainly. I think he feels, as he told at one point, he told a close friend uh, when asked about how the vice president was doing. He said he rolled his eyes and he said a work in progress. Um, but having said that, she's made. Some real progress, I think, and he—he's given her some important national security roles. Uh, there's a great story I tell about uh, previously unreported about Kamala Harris meeting with uh, Zelensky on the eve of the invasion at the uh, Munich Security Conference, where where she tells him, "Look, uh, not only are the Russians coming from you for Ukraine, they're coming for you and your family and your wife, um, and you better take this seriously." He still wasn't taking it quite seriously, uh, still skeptical. And as she left, she turned to an aide and said, I wonder if that's the last time we see him alive. Um, she's, so I think Biden has given her some important assignments. And I, and I think um, I think they probably got past that rough patch. We'll see. I wonder if presidents that have been vice president have a more difficult time in dealing with their vice presidents, you know, you th- you think about George H. W. Bush and Dan Quayle, um, Biden and, Ob- and and Harris, as you're talking about. I mean, there there there's a question about how those that have been vice president then look at their own vice presidents. Well, it can it can cut both ways, of course, because uh, Biden knows better than anybody just how thankless the the job can be, uh, and just how 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 unrewarding uh it's a it's a tricky tricky uh act and so you know i think that probably cuts both ways talk a little bit about the age question and how you think biden sees that in the context of of running for re-election and 
the degree to which he has to acknowledge to some extent that, that it is a real thing? Well, I think the way he'll acknowledge it is uh, the way he did in the State of the Union address. Um, that was, I think, the best speech of his presidency. Uh, prior to that, I would have said the January 6th anniversary speech or the, or the Warsaw speech when he uh, famously ad-libbed about Putin. Uh, but last night he was, you know, just absolutely focused and um, I thought um, really energetic and aggressive. And, uh, you know, I think that's the way he's going to try to to deal with the age question. I think he's going to, in effect, he's going to, going to say, watch me. Uh, that didn't look like, to me, that really did not look like an old man last night uh, during the State of the Union. I mean, he owned Marjorie Taylor Greene and the, <laughs> and the crazies who heckled him in, in, in what, by the way, ironically, was really his ad-libbed moment when he got them all to stand up and basically uh, – uh, stand in opposition to cutting Social Security and, and Medicare. You couldn't have scripted that. Uh, but I think that's the way Biden's going to address it. He's going to just try to convince people that he uh, he's up to the job. And finally, what is his take on all the, the MAGA crazies? And what, what does he think about that? It's certainly not something that he has encountered before, even in his, his long political career. Again, the thing that shocked him more than anything else uh, as president, and uh, he thought that, that it would be behind us by now. Um, he's, he, you know, he is old school. He, he, this is this is new to him as it is for the rest of us uh, since uh, Donald Trump came on the scene, and um, I think he takes it very seriously. I, I, I think that the Biden White House believes that Donald Trump will likely be the nominee. They're focused on him. And Joe Biden believes that democracy is uh, still very much on the ballot. Uh, So that's one of the reasons, hardly the only one, but one of the reasons he's running for re-election. And does he feel a special concern about that? I mean, this is more than, it, it sounds like from the way you describe it, it's more than just running against an opponent who has a different set of policy ideas, that, that it is much more consequential. No, it's absolutely uh, a defining test of this presidency. And I, I really believe that, uh, you know, Joe Biden looks at this, if this goes back for him, uh, this goes back to Charlottesville, which was the moment that triggered his run for the presidency. Um, you know, it, this is a continuation of that. He sees these dark authoritarian forces out in broad daylight. Uh, you know, Mike Donilon, his closest advisor and uh, wordsmith, uh, said, look, that was that was a door that Joe Biden felt he had to close. Uh, he felt that way at Charlottesville. Uh, he sees Vladimir Putin and his uh, and his troops as a as a as another manifestation of that that dark movement and and Donald Trump as a threat to democracy. So, you know, I, I, it's a defining test of his presidency. Chris Whipple, the book is "The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House." 
Chris, I thank you so much for spending time with us. My pleasure. Enjoyed it. Thank you.